0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me if you would to the Book of Psalms chapter 5. Uh as you guys probably know, this is our last week in the book of Psalms for a while. Uh, we've done five weeks, taken the first five Psalms, and um, it's been a really good time. And we're going to come back and take another chunk of this book at some point in the future. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to that. We will uh, next week. We're going to begin an eight-week series uh, in the book of Colossians. It's going to be called "In Christ Alone," and uh, I'm already super stoked about that. So. Uh, just so you know kind of what's coming and you can get excited too, start reading in Colossians. Uh, the, the thrust of the book is that Jesus is awesome and he's the answer to everything. So kind of fits right in with the narrative we stick close to here at Love City. So uh, it's going to be fun. Um, I also just want to say to you guys as you're turning uh, and finding uh, Psalm chapter 5 that uh, you guys did a really, really great job uh, with our first run of 10 verses in 10 weeks uh, based on the analytics that I looked at, just over a 1,000 people this week saw that verse come through their newsfeed because you guys did such a good job sharing it and getting it out there in front of people. So that means just over a 1,000 people uh, were either reminded of or saw for the first time that God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. So I'm thankful for that. How did you guys do remembering that? How many of you made it your iPhone background and found out that the uh, time blocked up part of the verse? We're going to work on that. Don't worry about it. That was to help your memory. We were blocking part of it for you so you could remember the first part. You wouldn't cheat. You're welcome. Uh, no, that was good. You guys did a great job. We're going to drop another, uh, another verse this week. So I'm really excited about that. The response has been great. I know you guys are too. Um, we're getting the, the Word of God written on our hearts, and so that's exciting. Okay, did you find Psalm 5? Are you there? Let's read it together. Two of you made it. The rest of you will catch up. Let's do it. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them, and those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor, as with a shield, Amen. Amen. We'll uh, come back to verse one and we'll work through this uh, bit by bit. It's a little bit longer than the other Psalms uh, that we've read, but um, I'll uh, I'll get you out of here in time for dessert, okay? So verses uh, one through three kind of kind of couple together in thought and. Um, I think it's interesting right off the bat here, if we look at verse one, it says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Isn't it interesting that David asks not only for God to hear his prayer, right? I think that's probably a pretty common request. Uh, but he doesn't ask that God only hear his prayer, but he asks him to consider it, to consider it as well. What we see here is David praying with the humility that should come from any encounter with the perfect holiness of God. He does not assume his motives are correct. He doesn't assume that what he thinks is right, and he asks God to consider his prayer, to, uh, to take the, the weight of his prayer and, and weigh it out upon his perfect scales, and to answer according to what he sees fit. That's an incredibly humble prayer. We don't see David trying to make a deal with God. He doesn't say, give me this one thing that I really want, and then I'll serve you faithfully. Anybody ever prayed something like that? That's not the way it works. We don't see David yelling at God for not doing what he wants fast enough. We see him humbly requesting that God would not only give him the privilege of a hearing... First of all, he understands it's by grace and mercy alone that his prayers even reach the ears of an omniscient and totally sovereign God. So first of all, he's humbled at that whole idea. So he doesn't, he's not only asking for the privilege of a hearing, but then because of the love and the trust that David has for God, he actually asks God to judge him. Woo! When was the last time you asked God to judge you? What does that take? It takes an incredible amount of intimacy and love and trust between David and God for him to say, Lord, not only do I want you to hear this prayer, but I'm asking you to consider it, weigh it out. I'm not assuming that what I'm asking you is right. I'm not assuming that my perspective's correct. I'm asking you to come, and if what I need is correction instead of a soft answer from you, I'll take that with joy. Glory. I know you're not excited about that yet, but we'll we'll keep going. We'll find something in here you like. Humility is an irreplaceable component of approaching God in prayer. We see a similar sentiment spoken to Daniel by an angel in Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. To back it up a little bit and tell you what was going on, Daniel had fasted for three weeks, okay? He was mourning, and he was on the banks of the Tigris River, and he looks up and he sees a vision of what I believe, there's some debate, what I believe is a Christophany, and that's a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus, As soon as Jesus speaks to him, as soon as Jesus speaks to Daniel, he passes out. The Bible literally says he just falls forward on his face. (laughs) I find that funny. Um, So as soon as Jesus talks to him, boom! right, straight to the forehead... And uh, he passes out from just the sheer awesomeness. That's part of the evidence that I think uh, it's Jesus that he's seeing. Secondly, the, the description is, is very, very close to how, we, uh, how John the Revelator describes Jesus later on. So uh, those are the kind of the reasons that I, I go that way. Um, and and then, then an angel wakes him up from passing out from Jesus' sheer awesomeness and gives him a message about the future. But here's what he says to him first before he gives him this message. Okay, This is what the angel says to Daniel, and this is why I came here. This is the angel's words. Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. Yeah, I don't know um, if it's because I got my hair cut today or because that's that powerful, but I just got goosebumps over the top of my head, man. Just thinking about That kind of language, and and here's what the angel points out. You set yourself to to knowing these things, but also to humbling yourself before your God. That's why I'm coming to answer. That's why I've been sent here. I'm here because of the words you've prayed. Now, some of you are not seeing the point of that, because the point of that is humility is a key component to prayer. Okay, that's why I talked about that. Some of you instantly... um, you, you have this issue in the scriptures or you hear someone else talking about it where you are prone to jealousy if you read about men and women or hear about men and women receiving visions from God because you yourself feel like you haven't. And I want to address that because you could have been listening to what I was just talking about in Daniel. I'm trying to show you the, the you know, irreplaceable uh, need for humility in coming before God and you're thinking about, well, why'd Daniel get a vision? I haven't got a vision, Right? you know, your two hands on the hips all upset and you're missing the whole point. So <laughs> l- let me just, first of all, I just want to say this, okay? So l- let's think about this for a second. Why did Daniel see a vision and maybe you haven't? Daniel prayed daily, a lot, and fervently, and it had been several years since he'd had a vision between the last time and this time, right? So you read the Bible and if you don't pay attention, you don't see the timeline, you might think, you know, every time uh, Daniel's, you know, saying, God is great, God is good, let, him, let us thank him for our food. You know, he's getting a Christophany, or angels are showing up to, you know, feed the food into his mouth with a fork. That's not how it went. Like, there was long times in between, and there was a whole lot of fervent prayer in between. Here's another fact I'll just drop before you. He had just got done with a three-week fast, right? <laughs> the, the three hours that you do between meals, that's not a fast, church. <laughs> that's <laughs> And some of you are struggling after three hours, right? Fast? What are you talking about? right? So the, the brother had just done a three-week fast, and so um, he'd spent a bunch of time seeking God. He'd spent a bunch of time subduing his flesh, being disciplined, and, and shutting down the voices of, of, of you know, just the natural racket around him, the, the racket coming from his own inner self. He, he'd, he'd gone through this process of fasting, and I think that's part of probably what primed him to uh, have this encounter uh, with the pre incarnate jesus and and uh, then an angel afterwards, so uh, I would just submit those two things to you so um, secondly, I just want to say this to you: receiving a vision um, is not necessary in order to hear from God. I think sometimes we see stuff like this, whether it be in Daniel or you, you read about peter 's vision with the sheet coming down and <clears throat> tells him to get up and eat all the animals. I know. Some of you really don't like those verses, I do, because it's like, it's my barbecue verse, right? So, um, get up and eat. Yes, sir, I can do that one. Uh, some, But you, you hear about these verses, or these uh, these visions, and, and you're like, wow, that's amazing, and, and, and you can get this idea that that's like maybe the primary way God communicates deep truth, Um The reality is visions are not necessary to hear from God, and as a matter of fact, sometimes a vision may be the result of ignoring the inner leading of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Sometimes a vision might have to be like round two of God trying to get something to you that he already was trying to talk to you about through the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, right? We got to remember, Daniel, this was before the cross, right? He didn't have the option of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as we have today, right? There was still there were still man-made places where God's presence dwelt in Daniel's time. We, we are in a privileged position to, we don't have to, ultimately, we don't have to rely on sitting on the banks of the Ohio River after a three-week fast and hoping that Jesus shows up hovering over the water, right? Now, that'd be great, and, and I'm not down on visions, but I'm really up on the fact that the Holy Spirit of God has chosen us as the New Testament temple, that we now have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us, and that we don't have to have a vision every other day to talk to God, He talks to us all the time, that he's willing to lead us and guide us and be that still small voice on the inside. And sometimes, sometimes you end up with a vision because you disobeyed that, right? So sometimes it could be a a disciplinary act. So don't, don't be so upset, you know, if, if you're not having a vision every other week, okay? And and I just want to say, don't, I don't want to overcorrect. I'm, I'm all for visions. The book of Acts tells us that they are often of God and the closer we get to God wrapping this thing up, they'll be more and more prevalent. Uh, the truth is I've had a couple of visions myself, so I'm not anti-gifts, anti-Holy Spirit, anti-visions, don't misunderstand me, but I want you to know that I'm not gauging my relationship with Jesus or anybody else's based on how many visions they've had, and you shouldn't either, okay? Can we all come to the table on that one and be all right with it? That's, that's where we're at about it. Uh, I'm glad Daniel had the vision he had. I'm glad it's recorded in Scripture, um, and I'm glad that part of what it teaches me is that if I'm going to come before God, I better humble myself and that that's going to be part of what helps me have an audience with him. And I think it's, it's less about being humble to try to twist God's arm somehow to listen to me. I think it has more to do with the fact that if I'm not humble, my ears are going to be deaf to his response a lot of times. You can do what you want with that. All right, now we're in verse 2. Uh, in verse 2 we see, uh, well, I'll just read it to you. It says, Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. So first of all, we see in this a declaration of relationship. David declares that he knows God is a good king, that he's not a tyrant who uses and abuses and then ignores the needs of his subjects. He's a father king. He's one who hears and cares about the struggles of his people. David knows he can approach God as that kind of beautiful, humble, relational king. I'm really thankful that's the way God is. Uh, He also tells the Lord... That it is to him alone that he is going to pray. David knows that Yahweh is God alone and King of Kings; that He's Creator and Lord over all. David is not going to get impatient with what he perceives to be a slow or non-existent response from God, and then because he's impatient and upset, uh, he's not going to he's not going to go and turn to magicians or false prophets or the demons that pose as lesser gods of the land. He commits to God right there. God, I know. I know how good you are. I know that you are my God and my king. I know that you hear my prayers, and it is to you alone that I will lift my prayers. My hope will go nowhere else, and I will, I will sit patiently and wait and answer from you. I'm not going to some other source because I know they will all be for my bad and that you're for my good. He's, uh, he's also not going to hedge his bets by mixing his relationship with God with other demonically-influenced practices like astrology. If you need help or direction for your life, you can either consult the movements of stars and planets and how they correlate to your birthday, or you can talk to the one who spoke and created those stars and planets, and you for that matter. Here's the truth, though. You can't do both. Astrology, tarot cards, palm reading, divination, necromancers, numerology... And all these other supernatural alternatives for seeking help and guidance, they are attempts to circumvent God's authority and are demonic in nature. And no less. Are you trying to just scare us and be extreme? No, I use the word demonic very intentionally because I meant it. Just so you know. Okay? They invariably open people up to confusion and other attacks from Satan and his underlings. Now... You might be thinking, look, man, it's 2015, what's the big deal? Nobody really believes that stuff anyways. You're talking kind of intense about something I don't really know is that much of an issue. Let me just say, to, say this to you. You might think that, but there is a widely listened to radio broadcast in this city where they regularly promote the witchcraft of astrology like it is an undisputed reality. I'm not going to out the radio station, but but my concern is it's probably a pre-saved Uh, preset on most of your radio dials. And so you need to know that because you could just be riding along kind of in that, you know, morning fog heading into work and listening to these people talk about, oh, well, this and such event happened because that guy's a Pisces and la da 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 da, and just kind of nodding along. No. Astrology is of the devil, flat out. And it doesn't mix with worshiping and serving God. Okay? Let me read this to you from Wikipedia. Astrology has been rejected by the scientific community as a pseudoscience, having no validity or explanatory power for describing the universe. Among other issues, there is no proposed mechanism of action by which the positions and motions of stars and planets could affect people and events on Earth that does not contradict well-understood basic aspects of biology and physics. So what is that saying in a long way? How fast Saturn's spinning and where it's sitting in, in, in the solar system at this point has very little to do with whether, you know, you're going to have a good day at work or not, okay? According to science, I mean, maybe you've got some other information we're not all privy to, but probably not, okay? Um, (laughs) Scientific testing of astrology has found no evidence to support any of the premises or purported effects outlined in astrological traditions. In one study, participating astrologers attempting to match natal charts, right, so baby reports with profiles generated by a psychological inventory produced results not significantly at variance with random chance what does that mean they let the astrologers give it a try the control was random chance and it's about the same right you can word stuff in a, in a, in a, in a way where you can kind of encompass enough things where if you go read your you know deal about what it means if you're a Sagittarius something in there right if you write enough varied things you're going to oh, oh that is me that's me right there, right? So, uh, <laughs> I do breathe sometimes, right? It's it's, it's stuff like that. Um, sometimes I have a hard time, but then I get through it. It's amazing. Um, I, I I will say this though. I, I will say this. There <clears throat> there are often displays of supernatural knowledge and power through these types of practices. We we need to know. I'm, I'm kind of. I, I read the thing from Wikipedia to let you know that you know science has pretty much, you know, declared what they think about astrology. But the the reality is sometimes people messing in this stuff, they can't experience legitimate supernatural things. Sometimes there's knowledge and power that comes through these types of practices. But just think about this. Since there are only two sources of spiritual power, right? We've got God and we've got Satan. And God expressly forbids these practices. Where do you think that Every once in a while, power that comes through these things is coming from. I think it needs to be stated clearly here that Satan's power is only a result of very finely honed skills of deception, manipulation, and prediction regarding human behavior. It no in no way rivals the real and creative power of God. Okay? Satan can't speak and create anything. He this isn't a yin and yang. God is really big, he's the king of everything, and he wins all the time, right? Satan is already defeated, he's a defanged lion running around roaring, seeing who he can get scared enough to to chase around and bother. That's the reality of what it looks like. However, so many people get sucked into this thing where, you know, um, some guy says he can talk to your grandma, and and, and then so, you know, some demon shows up and gives this guy a piece of information that your grandma might have known, and all of a sudden now, you know, now you're all confused because, well, what the... The Bible doesn't say anything about grandma. What should I be praying to grandma? You know, I haven't got a vision from Jesus yet, but this guy let me talk to dead grandma. It's confusion, it's deception, it's demonic, and it's not ultimately for your good. Uh, You might say to me, but hold on, man. My horoscope is always so accurate. I'd say, yeah, maybe it is. But if its accuracy is anything more than your own psychological bent towards believing it, then its then its predictive power is demonic, and it is not going to be ultimately for your good. Satan might make you privy to some information that you think is helpful to you, but ultimately if it didn't come from God and came from him, that somewhere in the back, behind the scenes, you're being steered towards something that's going to end up hurting you. I realize you may have had an experience with somebody that practices witchcraft or some documents or something that you know, purports to be able to read the future and maybe you found that to be accurate. There's two possibilities. It's either you psychologically were kind of predisposed to seeing something there that wasn't or, yes, something supernatural happened. But either way, if it's not of God, it's not going to be for your good. Satan's about your destruction. He's God's enemy and so he's your enemy. So stay away from this stuff, okay? All forms of witchcraft are prohibited throughout the scriptures Because they promote the same prideful tendency in us that intrigued Eve in the garden. The desire to want to be like God. Let's be honest. We like knowing the future and trying to control it. Don't we? That's the temptation here. And the truth is, God alone controls the future, and if you belong to Him, you know that's a reason to say amen. 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 I just want to say to you, you know... This stuff is tricky, it's sneaky. There are people that will weave elements of all this other stuff into some, some Bible language and, and I want you to know I'm, I, I'm speaking directly about it because I don't want there to be any room for you to misunderstand what I'm saying but I'm not jumping on you and trying to make you feel condemned about it. If you've been mixing up in this stuff, if you're messing with tarot cards, if you're, you know, if you're reading your horoscope and trying to base your life on that instead of you know, getting before God and praying and asking for his guidance, if you're messing with this stuff, I'm calling you right now to stop, repent, and get away from it, because it's not going to help you, okay? Let me be totally clear. That's, the, that's our stance on it. It is totally not of God, any of it, okay? Amen. All right, now we're in verse 3. <clears throat> it says, In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you, and eagerly watch. We've seen this theme often uh, as we've gone through the first five psalms, that we as God's people should seek to commune with the Lord at the first part of our day. Uh, and if you remember the admonishment from Psalm 1, it was for us to meditate in his law both day and night, right? It's not just the Ten Commandments, that's all of the scriptures. Um, we we're told that those, that's, that's what the righteous do, that we rejoice in God's law, that we meditate in it day and and night, so that we know our interaction with God can continue throughout the day, and it can be never ceasing. That's really exciting to me, that my connection to, my, my communication with, my conversations with God, that if, if I so choose, I can have really an uninterrupted access to God the Father uh, through the help of the Holy Spirit, and because of the finished work of Christ. So I'm very uh, excited about that. I need to do better at uh, practicing that privilege, though. I don't know about you. Um, there's There's a lot of distractions in this world right I'm not flipping through tarot cards, but just the pressures of the day sometimes can can knock me out of alignment uh, and get me thinking about stuff that that doesn't really matter um, this uh th- this fact this this admonishment from Psalm one to meditate in his law day and night this 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 theme that we see continually from uh, the psalmist that we should uh you know, we should commune with the Lord in the morning, and, and that we're, our, our meditation should be upon His Word all throughout the day and upon His goodness and His promises. This idea is part of our motivation for doing the 10 verses in 10 weeks campaign, uh, which, again, I, I couldn't be happier about um, the, the response we've had, how everybody's jumped in and bought in on that. And I can tell you guys are really excited about having God's Word written upon your heart because um, my, my hope is that at the end of these 10 weeks, um, you know, let's let's say the alarm goes off late, right? That that is going to happen at some point, point. Uh, and you know sometimes it's because you threw the alarm, or sometimes it's because you know when you when you hit snooze you were just a little too aggressive, right? And so, and, and then then 9:15 rolls around, it's like oh well, you know, so um, as you scramble to put some clothes on and make it to work, maybe you don't get that time to open up God's Word and read it. My hope is at the end of these ten weeks, minimally you'll have ten verses engraved upon your heart in such a way that as you're driving frantically you still have some of God's law to meditate on rejoice in and uh, be able to be encouraged by uh, and, and that's the great hope and so I don't want to stop at 10 verses honestly what, what I, my hope is is that we're cultivating a healthy habit and lifestyle of us taking verses meditating on them uh, learning them and having them engraved on our heart in such a way that they couldn't be taken from us no matter what and so that's an exciting thought to me Amen. I'm glad we're doing it together uh this idea of, uh, it says in the morning, I will order my prayer to you. I will order my prayer to you. The idea of ordering prayer, this is the same language used to describe the way that the offerings were kind of meticulously ordered or laid out upon the altar of sacrifice in the tabernacle, uh, which I think is interesting. Uh, and, but this is not to say that there are specific words or that those words must be said in a specific order, but just that we should approach God in prayer with the same type of holy reverence as those sacrifices were prepared, right? God gave very specific instructions. If you're going to lay a sacrifice out before me, this is how it's going to go. And it was very detailed. Um, Those of you that have, you know, you've done the read the Bible in a year plan. Some of you have done it several times. You know, you know, you get, get through Genesis, there's some good stories in there. Exodus, still pretty exciting, right? Then you get to Leviticus, right? Starts to having to power through a little bit, get to numbers and you're like, ah, why am I reading the whole Bible? Right? But I'm telling you, Jesus is in there too, man. We just have to keep asking for the Holy Spirit to show us where. Um, but even, I mean, even in those sacrifices, we, if, if we keep in mind the fact that the, every part of that sacrifice was a foreshadowing pointing to the people to the fact that ultimately one day Jesus was going to make the sacrifice that ended the need for all that. I'm just so thankful. The book of Acts says that God appoints the times and places where he puts us uh, I feel sometimes like we got a little bit of an unfair advantage, being born today with the entirety of the scriptures. Jesus finished work done. Man, those brothers that were back in the tabernacle hacking up cows and stuff, and having to look forward with hope by faith to Christ's coming. Man, and that's all they had was those foreshadowings. Whoo, You talking about? I mean, that's real deal. Um, I'm glad that God sustained them and got them through. And you know, His grace is sufficient for everybody. I just feel like we get, we get to cheat a little bit. Uh, And I'm real thankful. And so we definitely shouldn't be complaining. I think we're in a privileged spot. But part of why he put us here now is not just to enjoy the fact that um, you know, Jesus has finished his work, but he's put us here to be on a mission to spread that word to as many people as possible. And so uh, we also thankfully take part in that beautiful mission. Um, We see David say that he will pray. uh, He'll order his prayers, and then he's going to eagerly Watch. This is the posture of a person of faith. We know because God is faithful that he will hear and answer and we eagerly await that answer even if it's different than what we think is best. When you pray, when you take stuff to the Lord, I think we should assess ourselves. Let the word of God be a mirror here. Do we truly believe those words have reached the ears of God? Do we truly believe he's going to answer? And are we really fully at peace with whatever that answer is, right? To most prayers, God can answer yes, no, or later. We really like yes. <laughs> Everybody really doesn't like no, and later tends to frustrate us too, right? But if you, have, if you have enough track record with God, if you have enough faith because of what you see in his word, like David did here, you are my king and you are my God. I trust you, and when I pray to you, I'm eagerly waiting and watching for that answer, And I'm eager for it, even if it's different than what I thought it should be, because I know how good you are, and I trust you that much. And I know whatever the answer is, it's going to be for my good. I just want to hear from you. That's his approach, and I'm thankful for it. Verses 4 through 6 kind of go together. I'll read these to you. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. First of all, um, I want to point out the fact that there's something in this that I think we can see over and over again as we, as we read through these uh, psalms, and it's something that I have experienced in my own life uh, as I've walked with Jesus, and that's, you know, David starts this song he's He's singing he's declaring these things to the Lord he's asking for the lord to hear him he's declaring his love and expectation of the lord's answer um and 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 he's it's it's like this process of him moving towards God through this song and this prayer and and then it's like invariably there becomes this awareness of sin whether it's it, sometimes it's more plainly his sometimes it's just sin in general but it's like as David approaches God it's like It's like the awareness of the the absolute wretched nature and the danger of sin becomes more and more um, vibrant. And and this is something that I've experienced, and I think think Malachi speaks to it in Malachi 3.2. He says this. He says, Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And I just want to say to you, some of you have been discouraged by the fact that I I, I believe this is a principle that just is true and always happens. And some of you have been discouraged by something that's actually a gift from God to you. I believe every single time you approach God, whether it be in prayer, in worship, uh, in studying his word, I think every single time, you know, Psalm Psalm 100 kind of lays it out like approaching God, you come to the outer gate through thanksgiving and, and and then you enter his courts with praise. It gives this idea that as we approach God, there is this process of closing proximity as we come to him. Have you ever noticed this in prayer? It's like you come in cold, hard day at work, or whatever it is, or you just you're just wiping the crust out of your eyes in the morning, you start to pray, it's kind of like, you know, I'm not I'm not really engaged yet. But as you as you push past that and you and you communicate with God, it seems to be that there's this, there's this drawing by him and this allowance of him to come that he comes closer to you and you come closer to him. And, and here's what happens invariably in that process. As you get close to God, you're going to become aware of sin. And that's because he's a refining fire. That's because part of his nature is that's what he does. And so the, the way that works is you take a hunk of some type of metal, call it, call it silver, right? And it's, it's been mined and it's, it's got all the junk that's with it. It's got you know, what's called dross and little chips of rock and stuff like that that, you know, a a refining fire, what they're going to do is they're going to drop that thing in a crucible and they're going to heat it up super hot to the point where everything in that thing starts to melt. It's all going to melt together. And then what's going to happen is all the impurities, everything that is not pure silver is going to start rising to the top and it's going to burn off slowly. And the beauty of that process is as you come closer to God and that heat, that, the, the heat of the radiance of his refining nature begins to hit you, you're going you're to feel that, right? You're gonna, the, the vibrancy of the pain of sin is going to start to be awakened, whether it's going to be sins committed against you, sins in the world at large, your own sins. Every single time I spend a prolonged amount of time in prayer or worship with God, I end up repenting. <laughs> And and I've found that if I resist that, I end up staying out in the outer court, not drawn into a place where I've experienced of his glorious presence. If I'm, if I'm humble and I'm quick to repent and I deal with the things that that refining fire begins to illuminate, uh, I find myself granted closer access even still. But the reality is I can't come any closer to him if I'm not willing to let that stuff burn away. Thank God the process has been made easy through Christ, that repentance is available. The promise of 1 John is if we are, if we are willing to repent, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Part of the beauty of that is uh, that... The, it, it, it goes on to mention that God will be like a refiner of silver in, in Malachi 3.3. 3. And it's, it's interesting, if you, if you understand how a silversmith works in that process of refining silver, they throw that hunk of everything in there and they melt it down and the stuff starts to burn off. And the way that silversmith knows that that silver has reached a, a place of purity where it's acceptable is that they can look at that molten silver and they can see their reflection in it. And that's beautiful because that's what God's doing with us. Sometimes it hurts in the crucible, guys. Sometimes you come close to God's presence. It's unpleasant to have a, a light shone on not just our outward sins, the one that everybody can see, but the ones that we thought we were hiding from everybody, right? The behind-the-mask stuff, the deep heart chamber stuff, the stuff that we thought we'd kept tamped down, right? That, that can be a difficult process, but it's a beautiful process, and it's for our good because ultimately what God is doing is what Romans 8 tells us. He's working on getting us to the image of his son. He's like a silversmith and he's working on us. So quit backing away when it gets hot. That's what I'm trying to tell you. you, And quit being discouraged when you try to come close to God in prayer. You begin to worship him and all of a sudden you start to think, you know, all this stuff just comes out of nowhere like, oh man, I'm a wretch. What is wrong with me? Don't sit there and get on a condemnation hamster wheel and just think about how bad you are. That's the Holy Spirit bringing to you the opportunity and privilege of repentance. Take it. Repent. Yes, weep over your sin, but then move closer to God. Because as that stuff burns away, man, our access to him becomes closer and closer. And and that is a beautiful gift. And I'm just thankful that he's he's willing to keep messing with me. And he's willing to put me in that crucible and and work on me and and burn away the stuff that's bad for me and keeps me away from him. So uh, I just think it's interesting. Go through the Psalms over and over again. As, As David moves close to God, His mind turns to either his own sin or the sin of the world, and uh, he's broken over it. And uh, he finds himself declaring and asking for God's help. And so uh, don't be surprised. If you want to go in and uh, have a powwow with Jesus, you don't end up having some repentance somewhere in that situation. That's good for you, and it's God's grace to you. It's a privilege, and it's part of the process. Amen. Verse 5. It says, uh, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Now, we're going to have to deal with this uh, because we see a potential contradiction here. So, verse 5, we see towards the end, it says, you hate all who do iniquity. Now, the word hate here, if you deal with the word, get down to what it's talking about originally, it's emphasizing two things, separation along with a great displeasure. That's what this word hate is communicating. Separation because of great displeasure. Now, I'll give you some evidence for that. Uh, Because verse 4 shows us the context of separation. It says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. Then he goes on to say, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, You hate all who do iniquity. So part of what this hate is describing is the process of separation that happens because of wickedness. God's incredible displeasure with sin, boastfulness, and all of the things that are manifestations of our rebellion against him, that leads to separation. Do you see that in the context? That's part of what hate is describing here. Because you could read this hate and kind of run it through the way we use the word a lot and misunderstand what's being said. So you might be saying to yourself, and and, and still trying to work with that and work with the way you understand what hate means, you might be asking, how do we square the use of the word hate, um, you know, how do we we square the use of the word hate here with God's love for the whole world, right? We just started 10 verses 10 weeks, and what did they say? (laughs) God loved the whole world, that's why he sent Jesus, right? So how are we, hold on, but he's hating everybody here that does iniquity, but he loves the whole world. What, who's, is David wrong? Is John wrong? Or is everybody wrong? What's the problem? Okay, so um, analogies always break down, okay? So let's just say that beforehand, but I, I try to think through a way to describe how this might work. So remember that we see the context clue in verse 4 that ultimately what's being said here is that when he says, you hate all who do iniquity, that, that separation is a big part of that. That's what he's saying. You, You push away from you these people that do this stuff. Okay? So here's the truth. Sometimes I send my kids to their room. I send them out of my presence when they willfully disobey me. This time alone, away from fellowship with me and the rest of the family, gives them time to think about the separating effects of sin on relationships. Now, when they humble themselves and they are willing to again obey... They were allowed to come out and rejoin the activity that we were all doing together. Never at any point during this process, when I, because of their sin, because of their disobedience, their willful disobedience, I, I made them go away. I separated them. But never at any time during that process did I stop loving them. And so hate in this context, I, you know, you could say I, I hate them and push them into their room, but that doesn't mean I don't love them. We see hate and love as absolute opposites. That's not really what's being said here. Now, think about this with me. They're still little, right? And so they're going to last 10, 15 minutes in there. They're going to cry in their pillow, maybe scream in their pillow a little bit, maybe punch their stuffed animal. That's what I used to do when I was a kid. I got sent to my room. My stuffed animals had a rough way because they, <laughs> they got all the anger. Uh, yeah. So anyways, I don't know why I told you that. Um, so they, they may go through that or whatever. They're last 15, 20 minutes. They're going to come out and they're going to want to rejoin what we're doing because they're little and they still love mom and dad and you know they intensely desire that, that community and fellowship that is provided within family, as they should. Um, some of you might be like, you don't know my kid. Well, right, okay. But just follow me on this. The reality is, unfortunately, as they get older and have the ability to be independent of me, they could decide that they like sin and willful rebellion better than relationship with me and they could decide to reject my love and my standards, and they could reject our relationship completely. They have that choice. Now, for the sake of example, let's say that one of my kids decides they want to make a living by robbing banks and selling drugs and killing anyone that tries to stop them. Let's say they just, you know, whatever reason, they, they watch some movie, you know. It kind of breaks my heart. Can I just say this to you? I, I don't know. I don't try to single out certain movies and stuff a whole lot, but um, I, I work in certain areas of the city sometimes, and, and I've, I've been in more than one home, and uh, the, the movie Scarface will be on. And uh, I, I feel like there's, there's a serious level of idolizing... Um, what is it, Al Pacino? Is that the guy? Is that who plays in that? Al Pacino's character. I feel like there's a serious, in certain... Um, In certain circles, there's a real tendency to idolize his character as if he's somebody you'd want to be. And can I just say to you, he's not at all. He's seriously broken. He's ran by money. And there's a whole lot of people that if you ask them who you want to be like, it's that guy because, you know, he's got a guy in the basement counting all his $100 bills. You know how many rich people want to kill themselves? Look up some demographic information on suicidal tendencies. There's a whole lot of rich people that have zero hope and zero joy. Guys, this ain't all about money. And there's a whole lot of darkness that comes in doing things that hurt other people in order to get money. And so, um, I, I don't know that it would even apply to anybody here necessarily, but if if you come across that, just, just be bold enough to tell people Scarface is not a good hero. Okay? And and that ha- we need to get better heroes all across the board. That's part of our problem. Um, Jesus is the best hero. We should just... Focus on him and try to be like him. But anyways, let, let's say one of my kids somehow got, got a hold of that idea and decided they wanted to, uh, they wanted to be like Scarface. So they're going to they're gonna rob banks, sell drugs, and kill anyone who tries to stop them. Okay. So first of all, off the bat, I'm going to be very displeased by this life choice. Right? I'm not going to be happy about it. And I'm going to insist upon separation because I will not give approval to this behavior that is going to hurt them and hurt others. And I'm not going to be entangled up in it. You might say, oh, you're, you're not a good dad, you're not a loving dad, I don't care what my kids ever did, I would love them and I would accept them. Okay, you're a fool because you're going to have Thanksgiving dinner and you're going to have all the grandmas over and then here comes little Johnny that wants to rob banks and sell drugs for a living and then grandma's going to get hit with the concussion grenade when the FBI comes in and raids the place. And you're probably going to jail too for aiding and embedding. You didn't do nothing. You're a fool. And you're giving approval vicariously to what he's doing. So you can, you can say whatever you want to me, but that, that's not the way it works. Sometimes love looks like discipline, and sometimes discipline looks like separation. That's the truth. You can believe that if you want to. You can reject that if you want to. That's the truth as laid out in the Scriptures. I would never, I don't, let me just say this, I'm never going to stop loving my kid. I'm never going to stop hoping for reconciliation. But I will not be a party to some type of ignorant lifestyle that's going to hurt them and hurt others. I won't do it. I'm going to make them feel this thing of separation from me. I'm going to make them make the choice. You can do that, or you can have a dad that loves you and will help you. If you're willing to try to serve Jesus, man, I don't care how bad you're struggling. If you're willing to serve Jesus and obey the word, I will give you everything I possibly could come up with to help you get where you want to go. I'd give them the shirt off my back in a second, and I think they know that. But if they want to reject my loving instruction, they want to reject the God who made them and loves them, then they're, going to, then they're going to do that on their own. They're going to feel the pain of going it alone. That's how it's going to look. And I'm not bailing them out when the cops catch up with them. And a matter of fact, if they called me, I'd get off the phone and call the cops and tell them where they were. You're a bad dad. Keep thinking about it. You'll get it. I'm not going to leave any chance for them to assume that their destructive behavior is acceptable because as their father, this would be unloving. That would be unloving. For me to give them any possibility of thinking because of my softness about what they're doing that is somehow acceptable. I'm going to make it very perfectly clear. You cannot do this. You need to repent right now. Stop. And if you don't, there's going to be a price and it's going to be separation. I love you, but that's the way it is. But the kids could rail against me, as some of you are in your minds. The kids could rail against me and say, who are you to judge me? If you loved me, you would just accept me. They could go so far as to disavow our relationship and consider themselves no longer my child and me no longer their father. Even though in this case, even though if they went that far, if the situation went that far, I will not bend on what the standards are for a healthy relationship between us And even though they may refuse to see the loving motivation for those standards and they might choose to reject me, even if that happened and went all the way to that point, they disavow me as their father. I will never stop loving them and hoping for reconciliation. Never. And 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that this is the heart of God as well that he does not will that any should perish. As a matter of fact, it's saying most of us that are sitting around wondering where he's at, why he hasn't come back yet, that that's a result of his patient waiting for as many as possible to put faith in Christ. That's the heart of God. And so this hate described here is, is extreme displeasure with their cho- their choice to rebel against someone as loving and good as him, and it's the resulting separation that happens. But it doesn't. it doesn't that hate does not make his love mutually exclusive. They they can happen simultaneously and they do. His heart is broken over it. This of course is an imperfect analogy, but hopefully it helps us to see that God's intense displeasure with and subsequent separation from those who do iniquity is not only just, but it's also loving. God hating them and separating them from him and letting them feel that pain is not only just, but loving. That's going to be hard for you to wrap your mind around. I know that, but I'm laying it down to you right now. I know my vocal tone wasn't necessarily the most humble, but let me change it right now and say, I know that's a difficult concept, but I'm just asking you to think about it. I'm asking you to take that to God in prayer and let the Holy Spirit work on helping you figure out how the hate described here is simultaneous and a part of God's love for them. Because he will separate you if you want to rebel against him and disobey him. And part of it has to do with just his very nature. Part of it is him protecting you, right? Because when God shows up on the earth all throughout the Bible, what happens? Stuff lights on fire, (laughs) right? There's burning bushes, there's mountains on fire. Uh, Malachi says he's a refining fire. And so ultimately, God's going to keep you at some distance if you're deciding to rebel against him, partially for your own good. Because if he drew you right up next to him, when you're in that sinful, rebellious state, I think you'd just be gone. You guys ever seen, uh, what's that stuff called that burns right as soon as you light it? Um, Something paper. Flash paper, that's what it is. You guys ever seen that before? I think that's what would happen. Uh, And I think that's why God holds us at at a certain distance as part of his love for us. Um, All right, verse 7. Verse 7, but as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house at your holy temple. I will bow in reverence for you. Verses 4 through 6 gives us uh, the worst news possible. Here's part of it. No evil dwells with you. None. No evil dwells with you. So that's, that's bad news, right? Because each of us at some point, if not within the last 30 minutes, has Been party to, conducted, at least had a thought that could be categorized as evil. And so that puts us in a place of separation. But verse 7 gives us the best news possible. Here's what it is. By your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. So here we see uh, David has this understanding that sin separates from God, right? This is this is the, the narrative of the gospel. We see it right here laid out in Psalm 5 that sin separates. That's what happened, right? God made, uh, God made Adam and Eve perfect, put them in a garden, said, don't eat of that fruit. They ate of that fruit. Sin, instantly, the relationship, it separated us from God. It created this distance, which was necessary, because God is perfect, holy, and just. No evil dwells with him whatsoever. God instantly kicks into the reconciliation plan that he already had, and that was that uh, that's, that's what we see happen. We see as it rolls through Genesis, right? There's a flood, then he calls Abraham, makes a covenant with him, has Isaac carry wood up the hill on his back, and, and, and he cuts covenant with Abraham through that process. And we see, then it goes on, and, and there's more sons, there's more generations. We see Joseph in Egypt. They come out of Egypt, right? Then there's Moses, and they end up in the promised land, and on down through the judges, and then the time of the kings, and then the prophets come, and then there's 400 years of silence, and then Jesus comes right? Then Jesus comes. The answer all the way back from Genesis. Really, we're just watching the history of the whole thing play out. God had a plan. Every single thread that he intended was woven in exactly in the right spot. And what we see is a beautiful tapestry that when we stand back and look at it, shows the incredible brilliance and power of a God so sovereign that he can navigate all of history, weave every single piece of everything that happened together, including the free will that he chose to give people, and end this whole thing down to a point of his exact choosing. That's a big God. So Jesus comes, right? He's born of a virgin, lives a perfect life. Then he dies in our place for our sins. The Bible says he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, defeated death and sin. And so there is no evil that dwells with God. Every single one of us is imperfect. Every single one of us had a separation between us and God. Jesus came, made a way that that distance could be closed. That by faith in the finished work of Christ, because we didn't have the power to get perfect again, right? Once something's imperfect, it can't make itself perfect again. That just, you you can't do it. When, When the issue is not just good and bad, but perfect and imperfect, we have a serious problem on our hands. No, none, zero evil dwells with him. None. And so what has to happen? You have to be reborn. You have to be totally changed. Something supernatural outside of what you have the capability to do has to happen. God has to come. Change that heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Take you from someone that is wretched and cast away and make you into someone that is loved and brought in close, called a son or a daughter. The gospel has to be true for you. By faith you receive it. You're not going to do a bunch more good things and get yourself to perfection. You're not going to stop doing a bunch of bad things and get yourself to perfection. It is only by faith that we are given the opportunity to share in the righteousness of Christ that takes the sin problem, breaks its back, and sets us free from the chains of self-service and uh, sin. That's the only hope. That's the only chance. It's through the gospel. No evil dwells with God, but by His loving kindness and His mercy alone, we will enter His house and we will bow before Him. Praise God. Verse 8 says, O Lord, lead me in Your righteousness because of my foes. Make Your way straight before me. David knows, you can see this in his prayer, David knows that enemies... That their, their plans and, their, and their, their lies and their deceit, their, their, uh, their malice against them, that that can elicit from somebody anger and bitterness and vengeance. That, that those are our natural responses when people set themselves up as an enemy uh, against us. But instead of giving in to these impulses that surely were coming, David instead asked God to lead him in his righteousness Not David's righteousness. God, lead me in your righteousness. Again, we need someone else's righteousness because ours will never cut it. Because David knows that his own righteousness is woefully insufficient. And so we see him ask, Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Because if I do this my way, I'm going to end up stuck in bitterness and vengeance. I'm going to act out of that. And I'm going to end up interrupting whatever it is you are going to do and causing harm to myself and probably others. And so we see a wise prayer and, uh, and a, a, a declaration uh, by David towards God. He asks God to lead him in his way because if he tries to navigate his own path without God, it's going to lead to pain and ruin for him, and he knows it. So his cry is, O oh Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. Right? He doesn't even say, Lord, make my way straight. He doesn't want his way. He knows what his way is going to lead to. Problems. Anybody in here give a witness with David on that? Have you ever done it your way and it went bad? Okay, we got one honest guy in the back. Good. Woo! That's me right here. I've gone my way a whole bunch of times and ran my head hard into a brick wall. And sometimes I'll back up and go again because I'm extra stubborn. Then I need to get wise, and I need to understand what uh, the point of wisdom that David had come to here, and I need to pray prayers like, God, please lead me in your way. God, help me to see things through your righteousness, because when I'm doing this my way, it only ends bad. It's total, complete dependence and surrender because of God, because you start to really truly believe and how good he is, how wise he is, how powerful he is, and how incredible his sovereignty is. When you really get to the point where you can sing songs like this in the midst of difficulty, in the midst, right in the middle of the trouble, right? So many of us, so often, we get, you know, four weeks, eight weeks removed from a situation. We might be able to look back with hindsight and see, oh, that, that would have been a good spot to stop and pray instead of doing what I did anyways, right? The hope is, we get to the point that in the midst of the difficulty, when the temptation is to take things into our own hands and go our own way, that right there in that point, this wisdom has permeated our heart to such a degree that we begin to pray prayers like this right at that moment. And that we are saved the pain of the detour. That I just stay on God's way. That I reject the foolishness that I would normally entangle myself with. That I would desperately cry out to God to take me the way of His righteousness. Lord, please lead me in your way because what I'm thinking right now isn't going to work. All right, I know that. Amen. <clears throat> to say, make your way straight before me. Make your way straight before me is kind of like saying, God, take complete control and take me where you want me to go. And this made me wonder something, because you may as well say, God, take complete control and take me where you want me to go. And it made me wonder if potentially, and some of you that are better at the internet than me might be able to look into this, is there any potential copyright infringement on David's song here? Because that sounds an awful lot to me like this phrase, Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) And it also made me wonder if maybe Carrie Underwood was reading Psalm 5, verse 8, when she wrote that very famous song, And so now, you'll never be able to hear that without thinking about Psalm 5, verse 8, and I've just ruined it for you. You're welcome. Uh, I don't think copyright law was fully established when this was written, and so she's probably okay. But, uh, yeah, you know, If if, if this language is a little too much for you, just remember Psalm 5 verse 8, that's the Jesus take the wheel verse. Maybe maybe you just need to simplify it right there. And maybe the next time you're tempted to do something silly, maybe go go on ahead, man. Maybe you don't, maybe you couldn't see yourself saying, Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Lord, make your way straight before me. Maybe you just just boil it down. Jesus take the wheel. That's okay. That's an okay prayer. That's all right. That's okay. You can pray that. The Lord will hear that too. He knows what you mean. (laughs) He knows what you mean. He's probably disappointed, but he knows what you mean. (laughs) I'm kidding. All right. Let's get out of that before I get in trouble. Okay, verses 9 and 10. Uh, There is nothing reliable in what they say, their inward part is destruction itself, their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out. Again, we see the language of separation. For they are rebellious against you. Paul uses this description right here, that we find in Psalm 5, along with some others, he couples them all together when he describes the depravity of man in Romans 3. Go check that out later. He uses some of this language and borrows from some other places to lay out the fact that there is none good, no, not one, that the, the throat of men is open graves. Um, he goes on to say that under their tongues are the poison of asps, different, different I mean, really it's bad stuff. So this is not just the specific enemies David is talking about here. We're also seeing an in, in, in understanding of the depravity of man as a whole. All who are rebellious against God are corrupted to their core. Their throats are open graves, and they are unable to be freed from the bondage of self-service and sin. That, they're unable to free themselves from it is the key, right? Nobody that fits that description is just going to decide, okay. Uh, when you're corrupted to the core like that, it's, it's, not a, it's not just an act of will that takes you from that description and then makes you a son of God who's then allowed access to his throne. It takes a sovereign work of a really powerful and a really loving God. And so we see in this, uh, there's, uh, unless, unless these that David is describing, unless they humble themselves and submit themselves... And, and, and fall down at the feet of God and declare their need for his mercy and salvation, uh, it's going to go bad for them. And the same is true for every person all throughout time, including us. So, so think about that the next time you're having a hard time being grateful. Think about the fact that that was you, throat that was an open grave, right? That, that This describes all of us, that we were in serious trouble, uh, that there's there was nothing reliable in what we say. That the inward part of us was destruction itself. We were self-destructing, and trying to drag as many people along as we could. In our constant pulling and hoping and trying for some type of fulfillment, grasping at everything we possibly could, only to find ourselves hungrier and thirstier by the day. It wasn't until we get the drink of the deep and sweet and beautiful well that is Christ, that water that makes us never thirst again, that we could find satisfaction and contentment that leads to joy. And uh, that's, where, that's where this psalm is going to take us as we keep moving. Uh, before we do that, though, I, I just want to talk to a minute, a minute about this, uh, this idea. The, the last thing he says in verse 9 is that those, those same people, those people that the inward part is destruction itself, that their throat is an open grave. He said another thing they do is they flatter With their tongue. That doesn't sound so bad, right? We even talk of flattery sometimes in kind of innocent terms, Um, but I think we need to understand there is a serious difference between flattery and encouragement. Encouragement is heartfelt and genuine, and it comes from a place of real love, affection, and appreciation for somebody. Flattery is a deceptive uh, tactic that is about self promotion. Uh, and it's about an agenda. And uh, God couples it here with the same language as throat with an open grave and their innermost parts are total destruction. And so we should understand that flattery is something uh, that goes in the ticks God off list. Right? So I try to stay out of that one. Um, so let's, let's just think about this for a second. Many will use flattery as a way to manipulate the gullible. And it is, a dispi- it is despicable to mask evil intentions with nice and encouraging words that are hollowed out by ravenous hunger to fulfill one's own schemes. God is disgusted with flattery when the motive and intention is to try to get something for yourself. Now, you've got a kind word for somebody. We are called by God all throughout the New Testament to have encouraging words for each other, to lift each other up, to outdo each other in showing honor, and that's not what it's talking about here. There's a difference between flattery and encouragement. I happen to know this church is one of the most encouraging churches anybody can go to. That I hear it from people all the time that when they come here, people just are, are, are kind and loving and genuinely have encouraging things to say, and that uh, is only possible because Jesus... Uh, lives big in, in this group of people. Um, but we need to watch out for our own tendency to flattery when, when we would be in a situation, maybe it's in work or somewhere else, where you know somebody has some power, you know somebody has some influence, you know somebody has the ability to make something happen for you, and you start saying stuff that you don't actually mean just to try to butter them up and get yourself promoted or get yourself you know, into a position that would help you. Uh, God literally detests flattery and uh, it's, it's a despicable practice. Now, also, we need to make sure that we don't get overtaken by or deceived by flattery because it's very easy. It's very easy when somebody's good at saying nice things to you to not really care about what their motives are because what's happening? They're saying nice things to you and about you, and you're like, this is great. Say more things. And they will, but what's going on? We have to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Right. Do not be taken in or deceived by the flatterer because, because of your own appetite for affirmation. Let me say that again. Do not be taken in or deceived by the flatterer because of your own appetite for affirmation. Remember this uh, that Charles Spurgeon said. He said, when the wolf licks the lamb, he's preparing to wet his teeth with its blood. When the wolf licks the lamb, he's preparing to wet his teeth with its blood, and that's what the flatterer does. Don't get sucked into that. Don't partake in it, and don't you dare do it. If you do or have, repent. Stop. Get out of the, that ticks God off list. All right, that's a bad one. Repent. Verse eleven and twelve. All right, uh, out of the scary stuff, we made it to the happy part. You ready? Yay! That's the fun part about the Psalms. I always end on the happy part. Well, not always, but most of the time. Uh, Let's read 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Think about this. God has put considerable effort into the business of our joy. Has he not? I'm just so thankful for that. He created us with the potential for perfect and uninhibited joy in his presence. That's where he started. And then he's made a way when we rejected that for our joy to be restored. God has put considerable effort into our joy. He's given us so many reasons for joy that they can be like bricks with which we build a shelter around us to shield us from the discouragement and distraction of this world. There are so many reasons for joy. We have reasons for joy from the past, knowing that Jesus has defeated every one of our enemies and those who would seek to do us harm. When, and he did that when he stood upon the neck of death and he rose up from the grave. We look to the past. We have reasons for joy. <clears throat> we have reason for joy right now. Knowing God has promised to lead us and guide us in his way, and to never leave us or forsake us, and to never give up on what he started in us. We look past, we have reason for joy in what Christ has done. We look at our present, we have reason to rejoice in what Christ is doing. We have reason for joy looking forward, knowing that when all is said and done, and all things come to an end, that our God and Savior will lay waste to all who would seek to interrupt our eternal peace and bliss with him. And every single thing that's been made wrong by sin will be made right. We have reasons for joy wherever we look. We look back, we see the finished work of Christ, and we have joy. We look at our now, and we see that Jesus is working on us, and he's with us, and he refuses to leave us alone. And we, see, and we look to the future, and we see the promise of the finishing and consummation of what he has begun. And we're, we have no reason in any direction that we look to not be full of joy. And in the same way, the shield can defend a soldier from all sides. See, so that's what it says here. You surround him with favor as with a shield, right? Most of armor, the helmet, the breastplate, right? Um, the, the, the rest of the pieces, the knee guards, the shin guards, it's in a fixed place. It goes on something. The shield can defend from any side. And any way you turn... If your eyes are are willing to look at at what there is to be grateful for, if you're willing to look at all the reasons we have for joy, because God has left us not short of reasons for joy. Look to the past. The shield of God's favor and joy should protect you. Look to your now. and and I know everything's not the way you wish it was right now. I know that there's stuff you wish was different or better. I know from your perspective there's some stuff that could be going better. I know that's true, but here's what I also know. You look at the right now, here's what you have. You aren't the way you used to be. I'm not where I want to be, but you're not the way you used to be. You look at the right now, you have the promise of God finishing the work that he started in you. Man, but sometimes I can't tell that it's happening. I promise you, look back to the past again and remember. Remember how you used to think and act and speak. Think about how you would have reacted to that situation that happened yesterday, but you think about what Jesus has done. There's reason now for you to have joy. And even if you can't see it, by faith you can receive the promise that he will not leave you, nor for forsake you, and that he's working on you. He's a refiner's fire, and if you'll stay in that crucible and trust him, he's going to make you look like him. And if you look to the future, man, but there's scary stuff in the future, and I don't know what's going to happen in the future. You know what? I don't know all the details either, but there's a few details I do know. Jesus wins. Woo! I got reason for joy today. And so I have a shield of his favor and joy. I look to the past, I'm covered. I look to my now, I'm covered. I look to the future, I'm covered. And you can't take my joy. It's a brick and a shield. It's it's a strong tower I can run to and be safe. So let discouragement come. Let circumstances come that I wish were different. Let it all come. The shield of God's joy, which he has put considerable effort into building for us, will protect us in all those situations. For these things I am grateful. In the same way a shield can defend a soldier from all sides, the joy and favor of God defends us in any way we turn our gaze, past, present, or future. Victory is his, and thus, victory is ours. May we be a people who pray humble prayers to God alone, knowing that he is our source of wisdom and help. May we be a people who are continually found in God's presence, meditating in his word and with his praise on our lips. And may we be a people who joyfully celebrate our complete dependence on our loving father and in that joy find strength and shelter. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we are so thankful that by your sovereign hand you directed us to the book of Psalms in this time, in this season. I know that some of what the reason is that you brought us here in this time was you needed to do some things in me. Lord, I have, I have grown uh, in my affection for you and my trust of you. I have grown in joy as I have gone verse by verse through these beautiful psalms, seeing the struggle and the pressure of family situations, of, of wars, of, of treachery, of betrayal, of, of just the difficulties of life as they've pressed in around the psalmist and again and again, even as they've cried out in brutal honesty, They've never, ever been overtaken. I thank you, Lord, that there is the potential for joy in the midst of difficulty. I thank you, Lord, that there is the potential for trust in the middle of chaos. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us reason upon reason, and it doesn't matter where we look, whether it be past, present, or future, that the shield and your of, of your favor and your joy, it, it is ever protecting us. God, may we utilize this beautiful gift. God, I, I thank you for the description that you gave, you sovereignly gave to Malachi, that you are a refining fire. God, help us not to be discouraged when we approach you in prayer, when we approach you through the study of your word. When we approach you, as we worship you, as your praise is upon our lips, when we come into your presence, Lord, let us not be discouraged when our our, our shortcomings and our failings or when they are brought up to the surface. But Lord, may we become quick at repentance. May we lay those things at your feet. May we by faith receive the beautiful exchange that is us bringing our sin and failings to you and you giving us forgiveness and righteousness in return. Lord, May we do that quickly so that we can come closer and closer to you, God. I want to, I want to live the way Psalm 91 describes, Lord. I want to live in the shadow of your presence. God, I wanna be so close to you that you have to but whisper and I would hear what you're saying. God, I don't I don't want you to have to come and to rattle my cage. I don't want to have to have some crazy vision in order for you to de- describe what it is you're trying to get to me, Lord. I wanna I wanna be somebody that. Lord, all you have to do is is whisper that I I live in such a proximity to you that I'm so close to you, Lord God, that I stay there, that that still small voice of you speaking from your Holy Spirit to me, Lord, that I would hear it and I would obey. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for Psalm 5. I thank you that it it brings us through difficulty. It shows us the struggle, but it it also ends in hope. Lord, may we be people that pray humble prayers. May we not come before you in a disordered and chaotic way. I thank you, Lord, that we are invited to come like children. I thank you, Lord, that there is not some form of of religious uh, liturgy that is required for us to come into your presence. That's not what you mean. But, Lord God, I thank you that, um, that by reading this psalm, we would understand that we should have a reverence and a gratitude just for the fact that we get to come before you. Lord, let us not be a people that take prayer for granted. Let us not be a people that think we are somehow entitled to your presence. May we always and forever in every situation be overflowing with gratitude for the simple fact that you would acknowledge us as your children, that you would incline your ear to hear us. May we treat prayer for the privilege that it is, and may that make us practice it and engage in it more. May we understand how precious the ability to commune and communicate with you is. The fact that we can have a conversation with the God of the universe, may this be for us a constant and perpetual source of joy and thanksgiving. And because of it, God, may it affect the way we live. May the overflow of our gratitude for you and the joy that comes in being near you, may it affect the way we live and speak, the way we treat other people and and how quickly we obey you. God, we want to be joy motivated love motivated, gratitude motivated servants of you the most high God. Thank you so much that we have even the potential of that. It's only because of your mercy, your loving kindness and the finished work of Christ. We submit ourselves Lord God into your mighty hands and we do it with joy and anticipation. We love you and we praise you in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church. Located in Cincinnati, Ohio.